2021, and I'm just excited to be here. We are going to be talking today about steps eight and nine. And what I'm going to do to the best of my human ability, and I've got the guy behind me kind of looking over my shoulder over here. He's going to make sure I don't make any mistakes. He's my guide. But we're going to talk about these steps, eight and nine, and we're going to try to blow some of the misconceptions of these steps out the window, and we're going to try to simplify them so that we're not so scared of them, that we're not so trepidatious about jumping into them. Uh, it is said that the result of the steps is a spiritual awakening, and that is very true. And without that, we would not be in a place of neutrality when it comes to food, when it comes to whatever it is that we're addicted to. But there are also some byproducts of this process that are very, very beautiful to experience. And they are very, very beautiful, not only for us, but for those around us, because the three byproducts of this, besides the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, is we're going to get right with God. We're going to get right with ourselves and right with our fellow human being. And these two steps that we're going to be talking about today are going to be very, very instrumental in helping us do those things, having a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps and also getting right with God, getting right with ourselves, and in these two steps, right with our fellow human beings. So we're going to look at these steps and we're going to see how vital they are. You know, Bill Wilson said, we didn't invent anything new, that these are ancient truths. And in pretty much any religion that I have been exposed to, be it Ju Judaism, which is the religion of my childhood, my choice and my uh, destiny, <laughs> destiny, I guess, Christianity of the people that I've spoken to, God wants from us to get right with ourselves, right with God and right with our fellow human beings. So these are things that are very ancient truths, very, very important that we kind of keep that in mind. Okay, with no further ado, because normally I go into more of a review than we are going to go to today, because I really want to crack open these steps. Now, let's go to page 76. 76. And the very, very first thing that I want to remind you of, and we're going to be going into infinitely greater detail on this when we get to step 10, but I want to remind you that without step 10, I would not have the courage, I would not have the fortitude to move forward into these steps. Because if you're anything like me, making amends brings up a lot of fear. It brings up a lot of guilt and shame and remorse because I hurt these people and I don't like to think about that. So one of the things that we're going to look at is if you are a sponsor to make sure that we, yes, we do the steps in order, but we do them together. And it says in step 10 that we vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. It doesn't say we commence this way of living 
after we cleaned up the past. So we're going to look at that word as, and we're going to take it seriously because I can't clean up the past without steps eight and nine. So I'm going to introduce 10 right away. So if I'm the sponsor, when we're done with that hour after the fifth step, and we go to six and seven, those short paragraphs on the top of page 76, I'm going to introduce step 10, because step 10 is vital to the amends process to sort of give me that release valve, if you will, give me that release valve that is going to be needed as my fear, my guilt, my shame, sometimes my anger is going to start coming up as I go forth to make these amends. And this morning, I'm going to talk about one three special amends, but especially one that I want you to, to know about. And these are things that bring up a lot of feelings. And what is the problem with the alcoholic? What is the problem with the compulsive overeater? It's the buildup of human emotion. And the solution to that problem for people like me is to eat these extra, these foods, Reese's peanut butter cups, uh, corn dogs, French fries, pizza, steamed broccoli never seemed to take the edge off for me. Steamed cauliflower never seemed to take the edge off for me. It was always the foods that were loaded with sugar or foods that were fried or in some way, shape or form gave me what Dr. Silkworth calls the effect. The effect. What is that effect? That effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating that food. Now, some people, and there are 139 of us here so far today, some people get that effect by not eating. They're anorexics, they're restrictors. Some people, I didn't used to spit when I talked. I don't know. I think this is a product of getting old. I don't know what it is. I use, Now I have to serve towels with my showers. But the bottom line is, is that we have a situation where, ah, sorry, we have a situation where it works for everyone equally. Some people are bulimic. They may be regurgitation bulimics. They may be exercise bulimics. They may be laxative bulimics or combinations of those three things. They may be anorexic restrictors. It doesn't matter. We need to do these steps because this is what is required of us to have this spiritual awakening. And these steps, eight and nine and 10 and 11 and 12, are going to be worked every day throughout our lives because as things come up, we're going to see how these things perpetuate themselves. And if you know anything about me, I am a firm believer that every word of the big book was written by God Almighty. I think the guy behind me is wonderful, but I think God just used his pen. So let's, with that in mind, let's go to page 76 and let's see what it says and let's blow some of these misconceptions out of the water so that whether you are the sponsor or the sponsee, we can make it simpler, streamline it a little bit, and we're going to bring that step 10 into the equation because without step 10, I don't have that release valve for the guilt, 
the shame, the anger, the jealousies, all the various things that frequently come up when I am going out to make these amends. So let's take a look at page 76. It says, now we need more action without which we find that faith without works is dead. And this is a biblical quote that is quoted many times throughout the big book. And it's from the book of James in the New Testament. Uh, asking me questions about the New Testament probably not the best idea you've had. I'm a little Jewish boy from the neighborhood, but I do know from talking to my people that this is from the book of James. And the book of James was one of four books that were heavily influenced or that heavily influenced this big book. The four books, just to, because I don't like mentioning something and then not explaining it. These are the four books that were most important in the framing of the big book. Number one, the book of James from the New Testament. Number two, The Common Sense of Drinking by Richard Peabody. Number three, The Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. And number four, William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience. And the Varieties of Religious Experience is even mentioned in the book. And it's the reason that you have the stories in the back of the book. William James was a psychologist and in 1902, he did a series of lectures at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And these lectures, these things became the basis of his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. And when Ebby comes to see Bill in December of 1934, <clears throat> underneath his arm was a copy of William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience. And it was a book widely read within the Oxford group movement. He handed his copy to Bill Wilson in the hospital and the rest is, as they say, history. Okay. Faith without works is dead. So you get a little of everything. I never know where these are going to go, but okay. Hopefully that helped you. Let's look at steps eight and nine. We have a list of all persons we have harmed and to whom we are willing to make amends. We made it when we took inventory. If I've harmed you, I'm going to fear you or I sexually, uh, uh, it's a sexual harm. It doesn't mean I had sex with you necessarily. It just means that I harmed you in a sexual sense or I resent you. Now, when I say I harmed you in a sexual sense, that does not mean I assaulted you or I, I took liberties with you in any way, shape or form. But if you want a good review of that, check out the, the recording on, on step four. But the sexual harms section is vital because you don't necessarily have to have had sex with the person. What it means is you harm them by using your God-given sex powers for something other than what they were intended for, manipulation or revenge or just to satisfy yourself in terms of a social thing. Maybe you just didn't want to be alone. I would recommend going back and listening to that, but sometimes people can get confused. So I do want to give some explanation here. 
Okay, if, if, if I have harmed you, chances are excellent you're going to show up on my inventory, even if it's just a fear, because if I owe you money or I've harmed you, I really don't want to run into you. But if you have people or, or a person that you did not put on your fourth step, but in considering it now, you've harmed them, but you didn't, um, you don't have a fear related to them. You don't have a, a, a resentment related to them. It wasn't anything sexual. Maybe you owed them money and you didn't pay them back. Maybe something you put them down. So take a little bit of time in your mind. Sponsors, help their, your sponsees with this. Take a little time in your mind, in your mind and you, you owed somebody money and it got past you. You were doing your four step. You really didn't think about it, but now you've thought about it. Put them down on your eighth step list. Okay. We subjected ourselves to a drastic self-appraisal. Oh, one more point. For a long time in OA, we used to burn our inventories when we after we did step five. I don't know where that Michigas came from. I don't know who started that. It's really not a good idea. Do not burn your inventory. Sponsors, they're gonna need that inventory to do step eight. So burning it is really not the best idea because when you do that, now it's, it's sometimes hard to remember. Now we go out to our fellows and repair the damage done in the past. We attempt to sweep away the debris which has accumulated out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. If we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. So step eight is very similar to steps three and six. What are steps three and six and eight? They are launching pad steps. What do I mean by launching pad steps? We are asking God specifically for the willingness to take action. In three, we are, we are asking God, or excuse me, we are making a decision. We're not asking God. We are making a decision to do what? Four through 12 for the rest of our lives. And when we do 10 and 11, we're gonna visit four through 12 every day for the rest of our life. In six, we're asking God for the willingness. We're not asking God for willingness in step three. Sorry about that. We're asking God in six for the willingness to do seven. In eight, we're just, we're really asking God for the willingness. We've got the list in front of us, sorry. We're asking God for the willingness to take the action necessary to make amends to the people that we've harmed. So there is a similarity between three, six, and eight. Three, six, and eight. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning that we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. And we're going to see that theme repeated twice in this chapter. And it's something that comes from page 58. And it says on page 58, if you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. So this agreement to do whatever is necessary is going to be repeated and reinforced. And that is very, very important. Remember that God in his infinite wisdom, 
he teaches through repetition. He teaches through repetition. That's called spiraling the information. And the reason that that's important to note is if it wasn't important, God would probably not be repeating that information as often as he, as he does. So it's very important to remind ourselves, whoa, this is not only important, but it's in italics, something I better pay attention to. So as we stand on the precipice of page of uh, step nine, not page nine, step nine, sponsors reinforce, it's very important that we reinforce, not only is this a repetition of a very important piece of information, but it is in italics. And when they italicize something in the big book, remember that it costs them money that they really couldn't afford. So believe me when I tell you, when they went in their pocket and there wasn't much in there, but when they would go in their pocket to put italics in there, it was because they knew that this was vital information. And what in this is so important? Remember it was agreed at the beginning that we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. And remember that it says in chapter three, any lurking notion uh, you know, that we're gonna handle this ourselves, there cannot, this is a very parallel kind of thing. There cannot be lurking notions of who you don't wanna make amends to. That is going to be fatal because remember something, and this is something that you'll hear me talk a lot about. Sam Shoemaker taught the boys at the Cavalry Mission in New York City. Sam Shoemaker was an Episcopal minister and he was the front man, he was the point man in New York for the Oxford group movement. And Sam Shoemaker, he believed, and on page in a book that he wrote called Twice Ministered, he put on the four impediments to God. And what are the four impediments? What is an impediment for those who may not know? An impediment is something which stops or slows progress. It stops or slows progress. So we don't wanna be stopped and we don't wanna be slowed down. So let's take a look at the four impediments. And this time we're gonna concentrate on the last one. First impediment, a resentment that you will not let go of. And we see people going into their step nine and they still have a seething resentment. And this is something that we need to look at and we need to be willing to let these resentments go. Sponsors, help your sponsees. If you still have these burning resentments against people, institutions, whatever that may be, you have to take a look at that. And where a resentment serves me is it gives me an opportunity to abdicate responsibility for my life. See, if I have a resentment, say, against Larry. Now, Larry is, is someone, Larry is someone that I have a resentment against because he did such and such. Doesn't matter what he did. I know I was right and he was wrong. If I'm not willing to let go of that resentment, it's going to kill me. It's not going to kill him because that resentment is keeping me from God. How does it do that? Because it allows me to 
think in my mind that if Larry hadn't treated me horribly, I wouldn't be in the pickle that I'm in right now. And I can blame him for everything. It's time to hold God's hand and be in the world to play the role that God assigns, not the role that my ego would assign. I must be willing to let go of these resentments. Okay, so if a resentment is impediment number one, what's impediment number two? A secret that you will not tell, step five. You want to keep to yourself the most horrible, hideous things in your step four and not tell anybody that's going to kill me too, because I'm as sick as my secrets. So step four, first resentment is a resentment I will not let go of. Step five translates to a secret I will not tell. Steps six and seven a vicarious thrill that I will not stop. What's a vicarious thrill? A vicarious thrill, lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating, gossiping. Those are vicarious thrills that I have to stop. And what is the last resent? What is the last impediment? Mm, I may have forgotten. I can't really think. Oh, yes. Now I remember a restitution that I will not make. Now, amends is AA language. Restitution is Oxford group language. They mean the same thing. To restitute means to replace. To replace or mend whole that which has been torn or broken. Restitution is Oxford group language. Amends is AA language. Very important that we know that they are the same thing, the same kind of theme. An amends does not mean we just say, I'm sorry. We don't, when we amend the constitution, we don't say, I'm sorry to the constitution. We change it. And each amendment changes the constitution from what it was to something different now. We are putting in an amend to the constitution. And that's a good way for me to think of it. So maybe it's a good way for you to think of it. So a restitution that I will not make is a definite impediment to God. And we just don't want things standing between me and you and God. We just don't. We can't afford it because half measures availed us what? Nothing. Nothing. So we're going to go into this with complete abandon. And yes, we're going to trust God. Step two. Let's continue and let's see how simple this can be. Probably, I'm at the bottom of 76, probably there are still some misgivings. So with everything that we've talked about, the book is recognizing that you may still have a little bit of hesitation because you're scared and you're human. As we look over the list of business acquaintances and friends we have hurt, we may feel diffident. Diffident just means timid or shy about going to some of them on a spiritual basis. Let us be reassured to some people we need not and probably should not emphasize the spiritual feature on our first approach. So let's take out something and let's show it to the light of day. If you feel that you have to make an amends to whomever, I don't know who that is, 
and you just don't want to mention the God angle or the spiritual angle to that person. Maybe you know something about the person that you just don't want to get into this with that person. Don't. Don't. You don't have to emphasize, you don't have to bring this into the conversation. Okay. So in a word, you don't, don't, you don't have to. Top of 77. We might prejudice them. At the moment, we are trying to put our lives in order, but this is not an end in itself. And the next sentence here I have highlighted, I have it underlined, and this is something that is going to be in that cornerstone of our lives because this is pure Oxford group. It says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Let's stop right there. Okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of history. <clears throat> See the guy behind me speaking to the group in Atlanta? His name is Bill Wilson, and he was the co-founder of a little organization you may have heard of. It's called Alcoholics Anonymous. But when he was in the Oxford group during 1935, 36, 37, and 38, they pressured Bill Wilson in New York as best they could to go after the guys from Wall Street that he knew in his heyday as a stock speculator. And he kept saying to these people in the Oxford group, you don't understand. I have... In my heart, it just rings true that my life's purpose is to help the drunk get sober. I don't know where, I don't know how, and I don't know why, but every day that I wake up, there's nothing I want to do more than help a drunk to get sober. He felt this. He knew it in his mind and his soul. There's one thing to know something in your mind. I know in my mind that two and two is four. That's about the extent of my math skills. Two and two is four. Beyond that, I don't know what to tell you. I'm as lost as a lamb. But I do know that two and two is four. And I know that the planet that we live on is called Earth. And these are things that I know at a cerebral sense in the mind. Here's what I know in my neshuma. Here's what I know in my gut. Here's what I know in my heart. I know the pain of this disease. I know that the shackles of addiction are too soft to be felt until they are too hard to break. I know in my mind that we are shattered people and we have been battered by this disease in ways that defy explanation and that the 170 of us now that are here are survivors of a whirlwind of self-inflicted and others inflicted abuse. The shackles of addiction are too soft to be felt until they are too hard to break. I know that here. I may not know it here, but I know it here. 
And Bill Wilson knew here in his heart that his life was a life to be spent sobering up the alcoholic, to be the outstretched hand of Alcoholics Anonymous to those who urgently seek it, he said, for this I am responsible. And they tried to shout him down because the alcoholics in their midst had no money. The alcoholics in their midst smelled of urine and vomit and, and, and liquor. And the stockbrokers and the people from Wall Street were who they wanted. And when Bill wrote this line of the big book, he was giving the Italian salute back to the Oxford group that said, I am of maximum service. I'm being maximum by trying to sober up drunks. And he never wavered from that until the day he died on January the 24th, 1971. Up until the time he died, he believed that his lot in life was to sober up the drunk. So this line works at the level of those who know that story and it works at the level of those who don't. That's how universally impactful this line is. What is my purpose in life? Now on page 45, it says our real purpose is to, it says um, the purpose of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. So that better be the main object of my life, right? As a side purpose, my real purpose is to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Are they, con are they conflicting? No, they're, they're congruent. They're together. In finding a way to help others. Given that I'm in recovery myself, if I'm not in recovery myself, then I have nothing to give. And over and over and over again, you see people that are doing step 12. They're getting overwhelmed by service, but they're not doing 10 and 11 and they falter and they go away and we miss them sometimes they die. Sometimes it takes years for them to get back. So it's one thing to want to do service. That's great. That's important. But remember something, you have to be in recovery. You have to be in recovery. You have to look at yourself and take care of 10 and 11 before you do 12. So this is a very important line and a very important context. Sponsors, when you see your sponsees and they're sponsoring half the Western Hemisphere, time out. Hold everything. Take a minute to look at what's going on here because we can, in our enthusiasm, go out and overdo there is a time to serve, and then there is a time to work on ourselves. We must do our own care, and then we have something to give. Very, very important. So step 12, vital. Step 10 and 11, as vital or more so.
as vital or more so. Okay, so let's not inundate ourselves with service. I can't count the number of people. They're sponsoring this one. They're sponsoring that one. They're chairman of this meeting. They're doing this, they're doing that. And the other thing that does is it takes service positions out of the hands of worthy people. And that's why we rotate service. Very, very important. Just like it says uh, in the song, there's a time to mend and there's a time to do this and there's a time for everything under God. The time for this and a time for that. Okay, but you get the purpose here. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. This is from an Oxford group term. And it says, see the guy behind me here, Bill Wilson? He was given the Italian salute, but are you being maximum is the, is the Oxford group. Are you being maximum? Yes, I'm being maximum was, should be the re retort. Um, so being maximum also means you have something, you, you are in recovery, so you have something to give. It is seldom wise to approach an individual who still smarts from our injustice to him and announce that we have gone religious. In the prize ring, this would be called leading with the chin. Why lay ourselves open to being branded fanatics or religious bores? We may kill a future opportunity to carry a beneficial message, but our man is sure to be impressed with a sincere desire to set right the wrong. He is going to be more interested in a demonstration of goodwill than in our talk of spiritual discoveries. In other words, if you owe the person money, you must pay them back. Now, that you may not have the money to pay them back all at one time, but you have to make reasonable payments. If you've wronged this person, if you've harmed this person, you say to that person, I'm, I'm sorry I did that. Be specific, be specific. This is what I did to you. I am sorry I did this to you. How do I make this right? If it's a money situation, most of mine were money. I didn't kiss anybody's girlfriend. Damn it. I didn't kiss anybody's wife. Doggone it. No, I don't really want to kiss anybody's wife. But I don't, I don't have um, uh, a lot of other types of amends in my life. I just don't. But these are the kind of things that we must do. Middle of 77, we don't use this as an excuse for shying away from the subject of God when it will serve any good purpose. We are willing to announce our convictions with tact and common sense. Notice it doesn't say we will uh, announce to this person our convictions with um, craziness. We're not here to convert anybody. We're not here to sell anybody on this way of life. We are not here to do anything but make amends to this person. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to make amends. If the God thing comes up, say it. If the God thing doesn't come up and you see no good reason why it should, then don't. The question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. It may be he has done us more harm than we have done him. And though we may have acquired a better attitude toward him, we are still not too keen about it, admitting our faults. Nevertheless, with a person we dislike, we take the bit in our teeth. It is harder to go to an enemy than to a friend. 
but we find it much more beneficial to us. We go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit, confessing our formal, former ill feeling and expressing our regret. In other words, you tell him or her that you've had an ill feeling without accusing them of anything. You tell them you had this ill feeling and express your regret by talking about your character defects, your misgivings, your situation, never ever mentioning anything that they may have done. Because the temptation is gonna be because of ego. The temptation is going to be I'm gonna get you, you dirty bastard. I'm gonna mention how you did this and you did that. Oh no, oh no. We are not there to cause a ruckus. We are not there to discuss their behavior. We are there to clean off our side of the street. So if I have Joe, and I have a lot of ill feeling toward Joe. I feel he's really harmed me. I can say to Joe, Joe, I have had a lot of ill feeling toward you. I know that this is my ego, my character defects, my failings and shortcomings that have caused that ill feeling. I'm very sorry I harmed you. I'm very sorry I stepped on your toe or whatever it is that I did to Joe. I do not say to Joe, Joe, I know that you're sick in the head. I know that the witch you're married to is a real piece of work. I can only imagine what you go through on a daily basis. Oh, no, 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 sponsors. Pay attention to what your sponsees feel so you can be of maximum service to them. And again, you're going to hear me say this a lot. For the love of God, do not go in and make any amends until you have spoken to your sponsor. Know what it is you're making an amends for. I see too many people charging out They've had five minutes of abstinence. They, they wanted a, a milk duds and they didn't have the milk duds and now they're ready to charge in and make amends. No, 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 no. No amends before step nine and no amends do I make before clearing it with my sponsor. So this is another critical point in life in, in the recovery where I need the guidance of an informed sponsor because I can go in there and create yet more harm. I stick to my side of the street. I talk about my shortcomings and I am there to show contrition for things or a thing that I did to this other person and I am there to make amends. I don't want to keep saying it over and over again, but I am going to say it one more time here as because this page is screaming out at it. Do not under any circumstances fare forth and start making amends on your own without the guidance of a sponsor. Please don't bottom of 77, under no condition 
do we criticize such a person or argue? I'm not there to fight. I'm not there to argue. I'm not there to create more harm. And for the love of God, write this down. Sponsors, write it down. Sponsees, write it down. I'm not there to be right. I'm not there to be right. I'm there to make amends for the harm that I have done to this person in the past. Please give up this idea that you have to be right. I don't have to be right. I'm only there to do God's work. Very, very important. Simply, we tell him that we will never get over drinking until we have done our utmost to straighten out the past. Now, I want to tell you something that's historically important to know. We get this impression that Bill met Bob and Bob got sober and AA came out of their nose. Absolutely untrue. Bill met Bob on Mother's Day 1935, May the 14th, 1935, May 13th, 1935, okay? And Bill and Bob went up in the Cyberling gatehouse and Henrietta Cyberling and Ann Smith and Smitty and Susan, Smitty and Susan were the Smith children and the Cyberling children were there and Bill and Bob came down. It was like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai and he had the 10 commandments or the old Testament as some of you would refer to it. And AA just came out of their nose. Didn't happen that way. Hate to tell you, didn't happen that way. Bill gave everything he had to Bob, but Bob had one more good drunk left in him. Okay. Bob went to uh, the American Medical Association convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Now there's a mistake in the big book. No one dare correct it, but there's a mistake. The convention started on the 10th of June. It didn't end on the 10th of June. It started on the 10th of June and went to the 17th. And Dr. Bob had been going to this convention for many, many years. And Ann Smith begged Bill Wilson, the guy over here, not to let Bob go. Because every year that he went to this convention, he came home drunk. Bill Wilson said to Ann Smith, I will do no such thing. God has either removed Smitty's desire to drink or he has not. And Dr. Bob had been plotting in his mind because he had a lurking notion that he was going to get drunk at the convention, no matter what this yokel from New York said. And he was drunk before he got on the train in Akron. He continued getting drunker and drunker by drinking on the train. And when he got to Atlantic City, New Jersey, uh, he continued it. And the, the thing lasted till the 17th, but that's okay. I'm just giving you a little historical context. The dates are not important, but the dates in the book are off. The convention didn't end on the 10th. It started on the 10th. Okay. No big deal. Just give you a little information. Now, Dr. Bob ends up 
on Saturday, June the 15th. He is in Ravenna, Ohio at the, at the house of his, of his nurse. When I say nurse, this is the woman who ran his practice. She calls up Ann Smith and says, Annie, guess who's at my house? Drunker than a skunk. And Ann Smith is just beside herself. Here's Bill Wilson living at their house. After all the conversations and all the gesticulations, there's Bob drunk again. She didn't know what to do with herself. So she says, Bill, you go get him. I, I don't even want to deal with it. You go get him. She gives Bill directions. She gives him the keys to the car. Bill goes out to get him, brings him back to Akron to the house. Now, Dr. Bob had a surgery for Monday that he had scheduled. And he was the only one that could really do it. He was a proctologist. I'm glad Dr. Bob wasn't operating on my procto that day because he was shaking pretty good. And on that morning, the 17th, not really the 10th, but that's okay. Dr. Bob got something from Bill Wilson that a lot of sponsees wish their AA sponsors would give them. Bill popped open a beer for him and gave him a beer so that his nerves would settle down, so that the shaking would stop and he could do the surgery. Bob goes to the hospital, he does the surgery, but Bill and Bob had an agreement that as soon as the surgery was over, Bob would come back to the house and continue resting and get sober. Bob is nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found at all whatsoever. They can't, they don't know where he is. They're calling and he had left the hospital hours ago. Can't find him. Bill assumes that the beer triggered the allergy in Bob and that he's off to the races again and he'll eventually turn up. Bob had a habit of registering at hotels to get drunk under phony names. And he would register under a phony name. So they would check the hotels and they would ask for this one or they would ask for, you know, Clem Cadiddlehopper or, you know, uh, McFleasel McFleasel, whatever the heck it was that he would register under. 1145 at night, Ardmore Street, Akron, Ohio. If you've ever been to Dr. Bob's house, it's on Ardmore Street in Akron. Walking down the street, sober is Dr. Bob. Sober as the wall. What had changed? What happened? There was one step in the six-step Oxford group movement that Dr. Bob had decided he was not going to do. He was not going to go about making amends to people that he had harmed. Why not? Because he felt that by doing that, everybody would know that he was an alcoholic. What Dr. Bob was in denial about was there was only one person in Akron that knew Bob that didn't think he was an alcoholic, and that was him. Anybody that knew Bob knew that he was an alcoholic. And what he did on that special day, June 17th, 1935, or in the book, June 10th, 1935, 
he went about making amends to people that he had harmed. And he never drank again, ever, throughout his life. He now had completed the process. And in doing so, he got right with God, right with himself, and right with his fellow human beings. He had some thoughts of drink, but he never found it necessary ever throughout his life to ever drink again. And if it worked for Bob, it'll work for me. And if it worked for me, it'll work for you. So these reservations that we have about this step or any step, usually the ones that people have reservations about are two, four, and nine. Two, four, and nine are the big ones that people, oh, I'm not going to do the God thing. Uh, I may be broken, homeless, but I'm not going to trust God. You know, I may be a bum, but, you know, whatever, you know. So it's usually two, four, and nine that people run away from, right? And that's where we lose them a lot of times too. So the step is simple. The step is simple. We haven't even gotten much into it yet. I'm going to do as much as we can in the next 10 minutes. But I want you to know that this step is so vital and no story illustrates the vitality of the step, the importance of the step, the, 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 the vital nature of the step better than Dr. Bob. There's other stories too that could be brought in here, but we have not got the time. We don't have the time. Let's go to the bottom of 77. Dr. Bob never drank again ever in his life, not one time. We are there, bottom of 77. We are there to sweep off our side of the street, realizing that nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we do so. Wait a minute, that's an important half sentence here. Nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we do so. So if you are balking, balking means to hesitate. Sponsors make note of this. You have the responsibility to tell sponsees that without completely doing this step, not overdoing it or underdoing it, but by doing the step. When I say overdoing it, I mean making amends to people that you've not harmed. And I get that sometimes too for my sponsees. They want to go out and make amends to everybody. The guy that they passed on the highway. Hey, I want to find out who he is and go make amends to him because I passed him on the highway. That's pretty crazy. That's pretty crazy. Okay. Nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we do so. Never trying to tell him what he should do. When we say he, we mean the other person that we have harmed. Okay. His faults are not discussed. We stick to our own. You're not there to be right. You're not there to win a battle. You're not there to be up one on this other person. You are there to show your contrition and to demonstrate willingness to right the wrong if you can. 
If our manner is calm, frank, and open, we will be gratified with the result. It's not always what you say, it's how you say it. Yeah, I, I know, I, know I, um, I did this, but you know, yeah, you, you being an idiot, you know, of course, you know, whatever. You don't do that. Calm, frank, and open. Calm, frank, and open. How many of you, it's 181 of us here, how many of you would tune in next week if I got on here and said, ah, you guys are idiots and you guys are screwed up. Would you come back again next week? I don't think so. Not unless there's something wrong with you. I'm calm. I'm frank. I'm open. I hope I'm calm. I'm frank and I'm open. But if I talk down to you or I talk to you in a manner that let you know, I think you're less than human. I don't think you'd be back here anymore because people don't want to do that to themselves unless something's wrong there somewhere. Calm, frank, and open will be gratified with the results. In nine cases out of 10, I'm on page 78. The unexpected happens. Sometimes the man we are calling upon admits his own fault. I've had that happen. So feuds of years standing melt away in an hour. Rarely do we fail to make satisfactory progress. Our former enemy enemies sometimes praise what we are doing and wish us well. You know, there's something inside most people that is helpful of the striving, provided that they see progress. Somebody very, very wise, he's no longer alive. He said something to me, and I try to remember it as best I can. He said to me, Harlan, be helpful and forgiving of the wrong, the weak, the unknowing, and the elderly. He said, for in your life, you will be all of those things, weak, wrong, elderly. You will be all of those things, the striving. Be helpful and supportive of the striving. Be loving and kind of the errant and be compassionate. And he tried to teach me that you need to remember that we are all human beings, no greater or less than the other person. We are all human beings. We're not bad people trying to get good. We are sick people trying to get well. Be compassionate with the weak, the wrong, and the unknowing. Be helpful of the striving and loving of the elderly, for in your lifetime, you will be all of those things. And the man that told me that had seen humanity at its worst, for he had been survival, he had been a survivor of the murder and mayhem in Auschwitz concentration camp. And that's who taught me that many, many years ago. So we are here and what we're getting in touch with, hopefully, is the fact that we are human beings and so are the people out there. We are not the only ones that are human. It is all of us. 
incomplete and damaged human beings. And when we fit together, we're like redwood trees. The redwood tree is the largest organism in the world. No dinosaur, no mammal, no nothing is as big as a redwood tree. And if you've never seen them, get your butt up to Crescent City, California and see them. It's incredible. And the redwood tree has very shallow roots. And when a wind comes, an isolated redwood tree will generally go over. But the ones that are huddled together, their roots will intertwine and you can't get them to blow over no matter how strong the wind. They need each other. We need each other. Through the patchwork, through the humanity that we have, we need each other and we need God. And this step is a vital and crucial step in an understanding through demonstration, not a cerebral understanding. Remember I talked before about knowing the two and two is four. I'm talking about knowing something here in your gut, in your neshuma, in your soul, that we are all human beings. Let's continue. Occasionally they will offer assistance. I had people that offered to help me. It should not matter, however, if someone does throw us out of his office, we have made our demonstration, done our part. It's water over the dam. It's water over the dam. Most alcoholics, this will be the last paragraph, and Karen, we're going to run a little over, Maria and Karen, we're going to run a little over today, but we'll complete 30 minutes of Q&A, I promise you, but I need to cover this paragraph before we, most alcoholics owe money. We do not dodge our creditors, telling them what we are trying to do. We make no bones about our drinking. They usually know it anyway. It was no secret that I was a compulsive reader, trust me. I could walk into any room in the world and you knew I was a young man with a real eating disorder, whether we think so or not. Nor are we afraid of disclosing our alcoholism on the theory it may cause financial harm. We're not afraid of anything. We have God with us from step two on. He's part of our team. He's part of our crew. Approached in this way, the most ruthless creditor will sometimes surprise us. Arranging the best deal we can, we let these people know we are sorry. Let them know that you're sorry. Our drinking has made us slow to pay. We must lose our fear of creditors no matter how far we have to go, for we are liable to drink if we are afraid to face them. Why will you drink because you're afraid to face them? Because fear is one of those emotions. And if we let it build up, we're going to eat again in search of relief from that intenable, horrible pain of not eating. Now, I'm going to begin next week with a story about this money. I'm going to tell you the story of the dentist. And next week we are going to be meeting 